Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day that I record them, go to shiftradio.com slash premium. It only costs $5 a month. Today's podcast is sponsored by Mint Mobile. With Mint Mobile, there's no trapping you into a two-year contract or hoping to build a fight. All those crazy fees. To get premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month and no unexpected plot twists, go to mintmobile.com slash gold. Friday was a huge week in global financial markets, not just in the stock markets, but in the commodity markets and the currency markets. It all basically started with rumors coming out of China that the Chinese government was getting closer to ending their zero COVID policy lockdowns and so reopening more of the Chinese economy. And that sent stocks related to China soaring. In fact, the Hang Seng Index was up, I think, 6% on Friday. But specifically, the stocks related to mainland China that trade in Hong Kong had their biggest weekly gain in seven years. They ended up 9% on the week. But it wasn't just stocks that went up. Anything tied to China went up, particularly industrial metals. Copper was up 7.5%, aluminum 4%, zinc 5.7%, tin 6.25%. Energy, of course, also had another big move. Oil prices up $4.44 a barrel. We closed in New York on West Texas crude, $92.61. I have been talking about commodities on this podcast and how I thought they were in the process of making bottoms. Well, if you look at the charts now, those bottoms are complete. In fact, we've broken out of the downtrends. These downtrends were bear market corrections in an underlying bull market. Now, a lot of people were jumping to erroneous conclusions that the Fed was succeeding in its fight against inflation because commodity prices had already come down. And people like Jeremy Siegel were saying that the Fed should not be looking at the CPI anymore. It was a lagging indicator. It should be looking at these forward indicators where commodity prices were falling. Those were the same indicators that the Fed was ignoring. Commodity prices were rising before the CPI, and the Federal Reserve was completely oblivious to rising commodity prices. Instead, they were focusing on the CPI that did not yet reflect those increases. Well, Jeremy Siegel is saying they're making the same mistake now. They should be looking at the drop in commodity prices and not the rise in official consumer prices. But I've been saying on this podcast that Jeremy Siegel was wrong because that decline in commodity prices is only temporary. And in fact, that temporary decline has probably already finished. And what are the reasons for the decline, apart from the fact that we had moved up so much and nothing moves up in a straight line, there's always going to be a correction, was because some of that Chinese demand 
was taken off stream by the lockdowns. Well, if the lockdowns are going to be lifted and that demand is going to return, well, that's going to put a lot of upward pressure on commodity prices. And that is going to be very problematic for the Fed because it's going to see inflation being pushed higher even as the economy continues to soften. In fact, the way most people believe the Fed's policy will succeed in reducing inflation is by reducing demand, by weakening the economy, by putting employed people out of work, it's going to reduce demand. Americans will have less incomes and therefore they'll buy fewer products. Or by raising interest rates, if Americans are forced to spend more of their income servicing their debt, they have less money available to go out and shop and buy things. Or if interest on the money they have to borrow to buy those things goes higher, and now Americans have to pay higher interest on the money they borrow to buy consumer goods, well, they'll buy fewer goods because it now costs more to buy those goods because it costs more to borrow the money to buy those goods. So everybody is focused on the way the Fed is going to reduce demand and therefore bring down prices. But what if international demand goes up at the same time that domestic demand goes down? Well, that negates the impact that falling demand in the United States has on prices because foreigners could increase their demand so that net overall demand for these products goes up. Now, certainly when it comes to certain services for which there is no international demand, let's say a haircut, if demand for haircuts goes down in the United States, even if it goes up in China, that doesn't affect the barber here in the United States because nobody from China is going to fly to America to get a haircut. So it doesn't matter. But if you're talking about a product that is available on the worldwide market, especially products that are manufactured in China anyway, if demand from America goes down, but demand from China goes up, well, instead of exporting that product to the United States, the Chinese can just consume that product themselves. And so that product stays in China. It doesn't get exported to the United States. And so the supply of goods in the United States goes down because you have higher demand in China supporting the price. Also, there are products that we manufacture here in the United States or maybe that we grow that we could export to China. If demand is higher abroad, then products can be sent abroad to meet that higher demand. And that means even if there's reduced demand here in the United States, that reduced demand doesn't reduce price because the higher demand abroad resulted in the producer of that good shipping the product abroad. And so you're not seeing a reduction in price. Everybody forgets that demand is worldwide. I always talk about how we can have higher inflation during a recession because I realize that prices are not just determined by the ability of Americans to pay, but it's the ability of everybody all around the world to pay. And Americans are competing with foreigners for the same goods. And it's also not simply a function of demand, but it's a function of supply. Even if demand in America goes down, supply in America could go down even more because demand outside America goes up and supply is diverted from the United States abroad. And so even if American consumers are buying less, there is even less goods available for them to buy. And so what ends up happening is fewer goods get bought, but the ones that do get bought are bought at ever-increasing prices. So we can have rising prices even as demand falls. And one of the reasons demand falls is because prices are rising, because rising prices in and of itself reduces demand, because I can demand a lot more of a good if the price is low. As the price of that good goes up, my ability to afford it and therefore my demand for that product goes down, but that doesn't stop the inflation. In fact, historically, the very worst inflations happen in weak economies, and they happen in weak economies with high levels of unemployment. And the other problem is during those periods of economic weakness and high unemployment, that's when you get governments 
printing even more money. You get larger deficits, you get more money printing, and that creates demand, but you don't have supply. You're just printing money, and so you have even greater upward pressure on prices. And another factor that is going to be contributing to the upward momentum in commodity prices and therefore higher inflation numbers is going to be the renewed weakness in the U.S. dollar. And I have been talking on this podcast for some time now that the dollar looked like it was in the process of making a top. And in fact, even after Powell's surprisingly hawkish comments in the press conference following what otherwise would have been a dovish official announcement of a potential pause in rate hikes, even though Powell went on to say there is no pause. We're not even thinking about a pause. It's full steam ahead. We've got a long way to go. We've barely made any progress on inflation. Inflation is as big a threat now as it's ever been. And so it's premature to even talk about a pause. We're going to keep on hiking rates, despite the fact that Powell said that. And we got this sharp sell-off in the stock market and a rise in the dollar, the dollar did not make a new high. And my point was that the dollar's failure to make a new high was more of an indication that the high was in and the dollar was in the process of reversing. And I had also pointed out several key reversal weeks that we've seen in the foreign exchange markets where the dollar has traded above the previous week's high and then closed below the previous week's low. And these trading patterns were indicative of a reversal. And in this case, a top because we're reversing the rise in the dollar. Well, on Friday, it was dollar decimation where the dollar index dropped better than two points on the day. It was down two spot one four to close at one ten spot seven nine. The dollar index completely surrendered everything that it gained on the back of those hawkish Powell statements. And I think that this is more evidence that the dollar top that I've been saying had been made has in fact been made. If you look at some of the individual currencies, the euro rose just over 2% against the dollar. British pound also up about 2%. But commodity-related currencies like the Australian dollar up almost 3% against the U.S. dollar. That's because Australia exports a lot to China and is also impacted by the rising commodity prices. In fact, a lot of the industrial miners were up 10% or more on the day on Friday. But I think as it becomes more obvious that the dollar has seen its highs and is headed lower, I think you're going to get a rush to liquidate long dollar positions. So many people have been piling into the dollar as the only safe haven, as the least dirty shirt in the hamper, the dollar milkshake theory, whatever it is, lots of people have been buying dollars and they are long dollars. The assumption was that the dollar would keep on rising, but the minute that momentum is lost, there is tremendous downside as everybody looks to unwind those positions. And another indicator that the dollar has reached its high is that gold has reached its low. And in fact, of all the big moves in the market during the week, I think the most significant move was the one made by gold. And I have been talking again on this podcast that I thought that the gold bear market correction had ended and that I thought the lows were probably in for gold. And certainly, for the gold mining stocks. Well, gold actually made a new low on Thursday. We took out the 52-week low by a few dollars. We didn't take it out decisively, but we did take it out. And then we rallied a bit. We still closed negative on Thursday, but we didn't close below the prior low. We simply took it out on an intraday basis. But then on Friday, Gold closed higher by $52 on the day. We settled the week at $1,682.70. So if you look at the trading pattern for gold, it was an outside reversal week where during the week, gold took out the low from the prior week. It took out the high from the prior week, and then it closed above the prior week's high. But more significantly, than just taking out 
the prior week's low, gold took out a 52-week low and closed above the prior week's high. A very significant reversal, but also silver did the same thing. Silver took out the previous week's low, then took out the previous week's high, and then closed above the previous week's high. It was up $1.39 on the day to close at $20.84. But what's also significant about what happened with silver is that unlike gold, silver did not make a new 52-week low. And I have been pointing out this divergence on this podcast. When you see gold making a new low, but that new low not being confirmed by silver, that is an indication of a bottom because silver is normally weaker than gold until you get to the end of the bear market. And then silver starts to have some relative strength in relation to gold, where silver is not as weak as gold because silver had been much weaker during the bear market, but then it is stronger at the end of a bear market. And that is exactly what has happened. So more confirmation that we have seen the end of the correction in gold and silver. Also confirming that was the gold mining stocks, which also did not make new lows as a group during this down move. In fact, on my last podcast, I mentioned that I thought there was still a good chance that gold stocks would not make new lows. And now I am certain that gold stocks will not make new lows. The lows are in and those stocks are headed much, much higher. What also makes me more confident in this call is the fact that even though gold itself made a new 52-week low on Thursday, The gold stocks did not. And then we had the explosive move up on Friday where both the GDX and the GDXJ rose better than 10% on the day. It is very rare that you see gold stocks up 10% in a single day. Now, it has been rare in the past. I don't think it's going to be that rare in the future, nor do I think $50 up moves in the price of gold are going to be that rare in the future. I think before too long, we're going to finally see the price of gold rally by $100 in one day. Now, while it's true that the mining stocks as a group, as measured by the GDX or the GDXJ, did not make new lows this week, there were some bellwether stocks that did, in particular, Barrick Gold and Newmont Mining. Those are the stocks that are probably most heavily owned by the institutions Those stocks made new lows on the week, indicating to me that the institutions were throwing in the towel on gold stocks and they dumped the stocks that they owned. And I think that is a very positive contrary indicator that we've had capitulation in the mining sector where the bigger hands have thrown in the towel because they got tired of waiting for gold to rally. And all they had to do is wait one more day and they would have seen a spectacular rally because both Barrick Gold and Newmont Mining hit their 52-week lows on Thursday and then rallied 8.5% each on Friday. And really what drove the market to new lows were disappointing earnings, particularly the earnings that were released by Barrick on Thursday that caused Barrick shares to be down by 8.5% on Thursday. But the reason that Barrick missed on earnings was because of a huge rise in cost. Barrick reported that its year-over-year mining costs rose by 23%. Think about that and compare that to the official 8% inflation that we report, the inflation that Barrick is experiencing is 23%. I think that rate is more indicative of what is actually happening to prices than the 8% that the government reports. Now, of course, Barrick is looking at worldwide prices, not just in the United States, but still that is a huge increase. And I've been saying for a long time on this podcast that ironically, Mining stocks have been among the biggest casualties of inflation. Now, normally, you would expect that mining stocks to be the biggest beneficiary of inflation. After all, when you have inflation, people need to hedge that inflation. They buy gold. The price of gold rises more than the cost of mining it. So investors in gold mining stocks win when there's inflation. 
Well, so far they've lost. And the reason that they've been losing is because of the inflation deniers. Yes, people believe that we have inflation today, but they deny inflation in the future because they believe the Fed is going to stamp out the threat right now, that the Fed is going to be vigilant, that the Fed's going to raise interest rates as high as they have to go in order to stamp out this threat and put out this fire before it really spreads. And so people are not afraid of inflation. They're afraid of the inflation fight. And because that fight is perceived as being negative for gold, it's an even bigger headwind for gold mining stocks. Well, I look at the report from Barrick, not as bearish for gold, but bullish, because it's an acknowledgement of how high inflation is and how much costs are going up. And if inflation is this bad, gold is going to go up. It's just a question of when the world wakes up to the reality of this inflation. And by the way, you can already see the demand in physical gold and silver, where demand is skyrocketing. Central bank demand is skyrocketing. In fact, there were these reports of a huge buyer in the gold market on Thursday when gold was making new lows. There was a huge buyer that is maybe speculated to be China, which makes a lot of sense to me. I think China is really trying to stockpile its gold, especially if China is thinking of doing something, maybe making a move against Taiwan. They're not going to do that until they've really shored up their gold holdings. They want to divest themselves of U.S. dollars and U.S. treasuries and be loaded up with gold before they do anything that may invoke sanctions. Because if they divest of all their dollars and then they're not holding any U.S. treasuries, then they don't have to worry about U.S. sanctions. And in fact, if they load up on gold and we try anything, then they're going to benefit because the value of the gold they buy now is going to go way up in a world where we try to sanction a China that doesn't even have any U.S. dollars left on its balance sheet because it's already converted them into gold. But it's only a matter of time and not much time before investors recognize that the price of gold is not only going to rise commensurate with the cost of producing it, but it's going to rise more because as investors lose confidence in the ability of the Fed and other central banks to rein in inflation, now they're more motivated to hedge against inflation because they no longer can count on the central banks to protect them. They have to look for their own protection and they can find it in gold. But not only have gold mining stocks been strong in relation to gold, but they've been strong in relation to other stocks, particularly technology stocks. If you go back to the end of August, since the beginning of September, the GDXJ, which is the junior gold mining stocks, that index is up 5.5%. In contrast, the NASDAQ is down 11.5% during that same period of time. Now, most Americans own big tech. Hardly any Americans own junior miners. So what's going on is the type of stocks that almost everybody owns, they're going way down. But the type of stocks that nobody owns are going up. In fact, gold stocks were up in September, they were up in October, and they're already up in November. That's not the case with the NASDAQ or the S&P or the Dow or the Russell 2000, gold stocks are among the only stocks that are going up. Now, oil stocks, of course, continue to go up. By the way, ExxonMobil hit another 52-week high on Friday, while Salesforce dropped again. It was down 4.5% on Friday to a new 52-week low. And I talked about the difference between ExxonMobil and Salesforce going back to August of 2020 when the Dow Jones people in their brilliance decided to kick out Exxon in favor of Salesforce. Well, on that last podcast, I pointed out that somebody who bought Exxon was five times better off today than somebody who bought Salesforce. Well, as of Friday, you're now six times better off having bought Exxon than having bought Salesforce. If you put $10,000 into Salesforce on the day it was kicked out of the Dow, you'd have $5,100 left over. But if you put the same 10,000 
into Exxon with your dividends, you'd now have $30,000. So $30,000 is basically six times $5,000. That is the difference. And believe me, this differential is going to continue to widen. Probably at some point, it'll get to the point where the person who bought Exxon is 10 times better off than the person who bought Salesforce. Mint Mobile offers premium wireless service starting at just 15 bucks a month. And now for the plot twist. There isn't one. Seriously. Mint Mobile just has premium wireless service from just 15 bucks a month. There's no trapping you into a two-year contract or opening the bill to fight all those crazy fees. There's no luring you in with free subscriptions to streaming services that you'll forget to cancel and then be charged full price for. No, there's none of that. Years ago, I canceled the subscription I had with a major wireless carrier. The contract was up, but they kept billing me anyway for a service that I wasn't even using. Problem was, they were billing a credit card that had been canceled, and I had no idea that the bills were going unpaid until it showed up on my credit report, and it took forever to get it off. That's not going to happen to you with Mint Mobile. If you're tired of paying those big phone bills, Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month. Mint Mobile gives you the best rates whether you're buying for one or for the entire family. And at Mint Mobile, families start at just two lines. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone number along with all your existing contacts. So switch to Mint Mobile today. You'll get premium wireless wireless service for just 15 bucks a month with no unexpected plot twist. Just go to midmobile.com slash gold. That's midmobile.com slash gold. Seriously, you'll make yourself and your wallet very happy at midmobile.com slash gold. But getting back to the gold stocks versus tech stocks, the GDX was up 9.3% on the week. During the same week, the NASDAQ was down 5.8%. That is huge divergence. And look at the Kathy Wood Arc Innovation ETF. That was down 9.7% on the week. Basically, the mirror image of the GDX. Again, lots of investors loaded up on these stocks. Hardly any of them own the gold stocks. But if you look at the FANG stocks in particular, and I have been pointing out the relative weakness in FANG, Meta on the week down 8.5%. It's now down 75% from its high. It hit a new 52-week low on Friday, but then did manage to close positive, as did Alphabet, formerly known as Google. It also hit a new 52-week low on Friday, but it closed positive. But on the week, down 10.2%. It's down 43% from its high. Amazon, another stock that hit a 52-week low on Friday that managed a positive close, but it still closed down 12% on the week, 52% from its high. Netflix down 11.8% on the week, 63% below its high. And even Apple, which is sometimes considered the second A in FANG, even Apple was down 11% on the week, now 24% from its high. Apple now finally in a bear market. Another stock that's not a FANG stock, but I just want to throw it out there, Tesla was down 9.2% on the week. It's down 50% from its high. That's another stock that a lot of Americans own. These stocks are collapsing while the gold stocks are having a stealth bull market rally. Everybody keeps talking about how gold has been such a disappointment. Gold is not doing what it's supposed to do. Meanwhile, the gold stocks are finally anticipating that gold is going to do what it's supposed to do. It's just fooling a lot of investors first. And that's how markets operate. They try to move in one direction, but they want to take as few people with them as possible. So you want to shake out all of the weaker longs before a big move up. And I think that's exactly what happened on Thursday with the way the institutions reacted to the Barrick earnings by dumping their Barrick and dumping their Newmont. I think the shakeout is over. We've gotten rid of all the dead weight, and now we're going to have an explosive move up. But just as these undervalued gold stocks have a long way to move higher, these overpriced tech stocks still have a long way to move lower. And a great example was Twilio on Friday, one of the biggest losers of the day. This technology stock was down 34.6% in one day in response to its earnings. Twilio shares now down 87%. 
from the 52-week high, which is also a record high. But if you look at the earnings, they didn't actually miss on earnings. They beat, although they don't even have earnings. They have losses. Analysts expected the company to lose 36 cents a share, and they only lost 27 cents a share. So they didn't lose as much as analysts thought. And in fact, in their guidance, analysts were expecting a fourth quarter loss of 12 cents, and the company said, hey, we only think we're going to lose 6 to 11 cents. So even that was better than estimates. The only aspect of the earnings report that was amiss was in the revenue guidance for the fourth quarter, where management said that we're probably going to do about 6% less revenue in the fourth quarter than the street estimate. That's it. 6% decline in revenue equaled a 35% decline in price. To illustrate how dangerous it is to buy a overpriced stock simply because it's down, Twilio shares on Thursday, so before the big drop on Friday, were down 80% from their high. Now, anybody who looked at this stock and said, oh, it's down 80%, it's on sale. I want to buy it. It's 80% off. I'm getting a good deal. This is the danger of these false benchmarks because it never was worth It's record high price. That was a crazy price. And so you can't look at today's price and say it's a deal because it's not as crazy as this prior price when the current price is still crazy because the company is losing money. And remember, I said that the companies that are in the biggest danger in this new rising rate, rising inflation environment are the money losing companies, are the tech companies that don't generate a profit, that continue to generate losses and whose valuations are a function of hope. It's all about what investors hope these companies may earn in the distant future. And sure, when interest rates were zero, there was no cost of capital. You could wait on hope and maybe it'll pay off. But in today's world, those stocks are no longer in demand. And so those benchmarks are no longer applicable to today's reality. So all they're going to do is cause huge losses like the losses that anyone experienced who bought Trilio on Thursday. Because if you bought it on Thursday when it was down 80%, now that it's down 87%, that's not just a 7% loss for you. You've lost 35% of your money in one day because the stock went from down 80% to down 87%. So just because something has fallen a lot doesn't mean it still can't fall a lot. In fact, the company could fall all the way to zero. That's how low it could go. You could lose 100% of your money buying a stock that's down 80%. So you don't want to do it. And even if the company doesn't go bankrupt, if it manages to survive and restructure somehow, you could still lose 90% of your money, 95% of your money. The stock can collapse, then it could do a reverse split, and then it can collapse again. And unfortunately, there are a lot of novice investors who are about to learn this lesson the hard way. Of course, it's not just tech stock investors who are going to learn a very expensive but hopefully valuable lesson. Also, the cryptocurrency investors or speculators are going to learn an even more expensive lesson as they get wiped out as well. Now, Bitcoin did manage to rise on the week, unlike tech stocks that fell. And in fact, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust managed to eke out almost a 1.5% gain on the week. But Bitcoin's 4% rise on Friday was really nothing to get excited about, considering that Bitcoin is barely back above 21,000. And Bitcoin's 4% rise came on a day when gold was up 3%. Now, a lot of the Bitcoin fanatics were making fun of me on Twitter when I was tweeting about gold's $50 gain, and they were making fun of it because they're saying that's nothing. Bitcoin can go up so much more than that in a single day. Sure, Bitcoin was up more than gold on Friday, but barely up 4% versus 3% in gold. Back in the day when we were still in a Bitcoin bull market, if there was a 3% move up in gold, and those are very rare, but Bitcoin might go up 10%, maybe more. But if the only extra return you're going to get on a 3% move up in gold by buying Bitcoin is an extra percentage point, plus gold is not the only monetary metal. What about silver? Silver was up better than 7% on Friday. That's almost twice the increase that you got in Bitcoin. So if you're looking for extra upside in an inflation hedge, just buy silver. 
Silver is a much better bet than Bitcoin, a lot more upside potential, a lot less downside risk. And if you want even more upside potential, what about the gold mining stocks? They were up more than 10% on Friday, and that's more than double the move that we saw in Bitcoin. So if you're looking for a leverage bet on gold, if you're looking for a supercharged version of gold, gold 2.0, why settle for Bitcoin? When you can buy gold mining stocks, because if gold goes up, then the gold mining stocks should go up a lot more. There's a big difference, though, between gold mining stocks and Bitcoin. A gold mining stock is an actual business. It owns actual gold in the ground that it can mine and generate a real profit. And then it can share those profits with its investors in the form of dividends. Bitcoin generates no profits, so can't share anything, and it has no use, unlike gold itself. So you're speculating on nothing but air. You're just buying into a greater fool theory. So to the extent that you want to speculate on something that you think is related to inflation in gold, why settle for Bitcoin when you could buy gold mining stocks instead? You got so much more upside potential in gold mining stocks and a lot less downside risk. Also, adding to the excitement for gold stocks on Friday was news that Yamane Gold received a superior takeover offer to the one currently on the table by Goldfields. Goldfields shares soared 16.5% on the news that they may not have to buy Yamada because Goldfield shareholders were upset that the company was buying Yamada, but Yamada itself rose 20% on the news that it's now going to get a better deal to be acquired. Now, there are two companies that were combining forces to outbid Goldfields, and they are Agnigo Eagle Mining and Pan America Silver. Agnigo Mining shares were up 5.7% on the day. So they went up even though they're buying another company, although AEM underperformed gold stocks in general. But Pan American Silver actually went down Shares made a new 52-week low on the day. At one point, shares of Pan American Silver were down better than 9% on the day. But by the end of the day, the losses were paired and the stock closed down just under 2% on the day. Just an FYI, I own stock in all four of these companies. So it was a pretty good day for me, even though one was down, three were up, and the ones that were up were up a lot more. But this type of industry consolidation is the activity that you see near market bottoms. The people that know the industry the best, the CEOs find value in other companies within their industry, and so they're acquiring them. It's not that we have a lot of outside capital coming in. That's typically what you see closer to market tops than market bottoms, where everybody wants to get in on the action. Here you have the smart money taking advantage of opportunities, which is why the smart individual investor should follow these insiders and buy these mining stocks while they're cheap. The big domestic economic news on the day was the release of the October jobs report. This is the final jobs report card that voters are going to have before they step into the voting booth on Tuesday to determine the balance of power in Congress. And as I said on my last podcast, I'm looking for a red wave on Tuesday and for the Republicans to take control over the House and the United States Senate. The expectation for the jobs numbers was for an increase of 210,000 jobs following 263,000 jobs in September. And we actually got a beat we got 261,000 jobs created. That was actually above the upper end of the range, which stretched all the way from a low of 125,000 to a high of 250,000. So we topped that, and we even upwardly revised the prior month from 263,000 in the original report to 315,000. So stronger than expected. All the headlines were about how we had another stronger than expected non-farm payroll report, which made the rise in gold that much more impressive because gold completely shrugged off this data and kept rising. The same thing with the dollar. The dollar did not rally on the back of stronger than expected jobs numbers. It continued to decline. And to me, this indicates more evidence that the dollar has made its top and gold has made its bottom. 
But of course, getting back to these job numbers, what lies beneath often tells a completely different story than what is available if you just focus on the headlines. The unemployment rate rose from 3.6 to 3.7%, and the labor force participation rate dropped from 62.3% to 62.2%. Average hourly earnings were up again, a little bit hotter than expected. We rose 0.4 rather than 0.3. Again, the foreign exchange markets and the precious metals markets shrugging off those hotter than expected numbers that would portend hotter inflation. Average hourly earnings also up 4.7%. That was in line, as was the average work week. But the real story that is not being reported is the quality of these jobs and how meaningless this unemployment rate actually is. First of all, let's look at these 261,000 jobs that were created during the month of September. That is in the establishment survey. But there's also a household survey that is released on the same day as the establishment survey. And that shows a completely different picture of the labor market. Because according to the household survey, employment fell by 328,000 jobs during the month of October. That is a sharply different picture than the one that is painted by the establishment survey. In fact, if you go back to March of 2022 and you add up all of the non-farm payroll gains that the government has claimed credit for, 2,452,000 jobs were created. However, during that identical period of time, according to the household survey, there were only 148,000 more people employed. Think about that. Almost two and a half million jobs were created, but you didn't even have another 150,000 people employed. Total employment in March was 158,460,000, and in October, it was 158,608,000. The question is, how can you add almost two and a half million jobs, yet not even 150,000 people go back to work? The answer is the jobs that were created went to people who already had jobs. And of course, most of those jobs were part-time jobs. In fact, all of the 2,452,000 jobs added since March are part-time jobs. If you look at the household survey during that same period of time, starting from March through October, 490,000 full-time jobs were lost. And in fact, that trend accelerated starting in May. Since that point, while the government claims 1,698,000 jobs were created, 572,000 full-time jobs were lost. So that is what's really going on in the U.S. labor market. We are hemorrhaging full-time jobs. And because people are losing their full-time jobs, they are having to settle for part-time jobs. And those part-time jobs are what is showing up in the job creation numbers. And the reason that we're creating so many jobs, but we're not creating more workers, is because those jobs are going to people who already have jobs. So it's not people who have no job who are getting jobs. It's people who already have one job who are getting a second job, or people who already have two jobs getting a third job. And the fact that there's such a huge increase in moonlighting, this is not evidence of a strong economy or even a strong labor market. It's a weak economy that forces more people to have more jobs just to put food on the table or to pay the rent. And of course, these part-time jobs are lower paying jobs. Even if you have multiple part-time jobs that give you the same hours as a full-time job, chances are your combined pay is a lot lower Plus, you have a lot of downtime because you have to commute from one part-time job to another part-time job. You're not getting paid for the commute. You may have to pay to commute because of the cost to get from one job to another job. And of course, most part-time jobs don't have the benefits that come with full-time employment. So Americans are really struggling in this economy. Their earnings are down. Their cost of living is up. That is why the Republicans are going to do so well in the elections. And that's also why all this talk 
about the fact that we don't have a recession because we have such a strong labor market is so ridiculous because we don't have a strong labor market. We have a weak labor market. That is the reason that so many people who don't want second and third jobs are being forced to take them anyway because it's the only way they can make ends meet. Now, of course, one of the other ways that they try to pretend that we're not in a recession is by pointing to this low unemployment rate of 3.7%. And they're saying, well, if the unemployment rate is so low, we can't be in recession. This unemployment rate is absolutely meaningless because it captures such a small percentage of the population that is in fact unemployed. Because it is very difficult to qualify as unemployed in today's economy. First of all, in order to be counted as unemployed, you have to have earned no money at all in the survey week. So even if you got a job for an hour, somebody hired you and gave you $10 to do an hour's worth of work. If you spent the other 39 hours of your week looking for a job, you're still not counted as unemployed because you got paid for an hour's worth of work. Now, this is particularly problematic when it comes to measuring unemployment where you have opportunities like Uber that are available to the unemployed. A lot of people who may sign up to become Uber drivers, maybe they sign up after they've lost their job. And so they're looking for a way to earn a little money while they continue to look for a job. Let's say I'm an engineer and I lost my engineering job and I'm looking for another job. And so I sign up with Uber so I can pick up a little cash on the side while I'm looking for work. Well, the minute I've done that, I'm no longer unemployed. I'm still unemployed as an engineer, but I'm driving an Uber. So now, according to the government, I'm no longer unemployed, even if most of my day is not spent driving my Uber, but looking for another job, I am not counting as unemployed. And so you have all these jobs in the gig economy that people can sign up for while they are looking for work so that they no longer qualify as being unemployed. But also, there's another reason that I think a lot of the unemployed are slipping through the cracks. It's not just that you didn't earn any money during the week, but you have to actively look for work during the prior four weeks. Now, the way the government defines actively looking for work, you have to actually send out a resume. You have to actually go on a job interview. You can't simply look online and kind of peruse through available job openings. And then if you don't see any jobs that you may be qualified for, or you just don't think there's any that you're going to get, and so you don't bother to fill out an application, even if you've done that, you're not considered looking for a job. That's not actively looking. That's passively looking. It's possible that what happens when a lot of people get laid off initially They send out a bunch of resumes. Maybe they upload their resume onto these job recruiting sites. And then they kind of sit back and they wait for an employer to contact them based on the resumes they've already sent out or their resume being posted. And they're waiting for someone to call. Well, if you're not actively doing anything while you're waiting, you're not going to be counted as unemployed. And I think the way Americans look for work today is much different than they looked in the past when people really pounded the pavement looking for a job. The reason that expression came into existence is because people would go door to door, knocking on doors, asking the employers if they needed any help. Hey, I'm unemployed. I'm looking for work. You got any jobs? You would just knock on doors. I even did that myself when I was younger, looking for a job. The best way to find out if somebody needs a job is to ask. And then a lot of times what would happen is companies would have signs, maybe help wanted, or even if they didn't have a sign, they would say, well, fill out an application. And so you take the application, you'd fill it out and you submit it. That was considered actively looking for a job. And so if you were doing that, then you could demonstrate that you were unemployed. But nobody does that today. Nobody pounds the pavement. Everything is done online. And so a lot of the unemployed who are looking for jobs on the internet are not counted as being unemployed because their activity is considered passive rather than active. Even though it's not, 
passive because they've made an effort. They've put their resumes out there. Their resumes are listed on multiple recruiting sites, and they're hoping that somebody reaches out to them now that they've put all that information out there. These people are not being picked up as being unemployed, but I know they're unemployed, and you know that by looking at the labor force participation rate. By the way, in March of this year, it was at 62.4. It's now at 62.2. So even though we've created 2.5 million jobs, the labor force participation rate has gone down despite all those extra jobs. I find it hard to believe that the reason we've seen this big drop in the labor force participation rate is that so many Americans are now so affluent that they just don't have to work. I also haven't seen a dramatic increase in the welfare state that would make being on welfare so much more attractive than having a job. So what makes the most sense to me is that the reason the labor force participation rate has gone down so much is because we're not accurately measuring who is in the labor force. And where you see that the most is in the unemployment rate, because I believe a lot of the people who are currently counted as not being in the labor force, which is why the labor force participation rate is so low, are actually unemployed. They would take jobs if they could find them, but they can't. And the fact that there's so many jobs out there as measured by the help wanted index, when you look at these jolt numbers, what that just means to me is that employers are looking for workers that have skills that the American workforce simply doesn't have. And that's why there's so many job offerings, because there's so few people actually qualified to take those jobs. And also, I think some of the jobs that are offered, the pay is not lucrative enough to entice people off of welfare or other benefits that they lose the minute they get jobs. In addition, once they take a job, they start paying taxes. So it's a double hit. You not only lose your welfare benefits, but then you have to pay taxes on what you earn. Now, in most cases, it's not the income tax that workers end up paying, but the payroll tax, which is in effect over 15% of their earnings. Yes, they only pay half, the other half is supposedly covered by the employer, but the employer simply pays his half with money that otherwise would have been paid to the worker in the form of higher wages. And so I think that is another disincentive to taking jobs. But I don't know that there's been a significant increase in that disincentive to account for the drop in the labor force participation rate. Although one other recent incentive is perhaps how much money a lot of young people were making trading stocks on Robinhood or trading cryptocurrencies. And so that easy money may have been a reason that a lot of people didn't feel that they needed a job. And that may be changing soon as all of those profits are turning into losses. And a lot of millennials are learning the hard way that being a professional gambler is not a substitute for having an actual job.